Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 155, the Apple Keynote. Hi, I'm Neil. Last week, I flew out to California to attend Apple's product event at Steve Jobs Theater. There were new iPhones, new Apple Watches, and we finally got to see Apple's pricing strategy for Apple Arcade and Apple TV+. Historically, whenever Apple holds these product events, there is a debate that follows. People look at the new products and wonder, did Apple do enough? How will these products do in the marketplace? There was a debate following last week's product event as well. But this debate had a different tone. There was backlash. There was criticism. And it was focused on the actual event. It wasn't on the products that were unveiled on stage. The New York Times ran an opinion piece calling for the end of Apple keynotes. According to the writer, there's no longer a place for such pageants in today's polarizing world. On Twitter, you had tech writers and reporters say how Apple's dessert offerings suggested that the company's tone deaf. There was even some complaints that members of the audience were too emotional during that Apple Watch video in which you had Apple Watch users tell stories of how the device saved their lives. There was someone complaining that members of the media were getting emotional from that video. Hard to believe, huh? While Apple cynicism isn't new, those preceding opinions represent a new kind of outrage. Today's episode is going to be dedicated to talking about the Apple keynote. We're going to look at whether or not it makes sense for Apple to continue holding these events. And I do think in the beginning of the discussion, we have to go over some of this outrage. We have to take a look at where is it coming from. But I don't think it's worth spending the whole episode on that. There's just not enough value there. Instead, I want to take a deep dive into the actual keynote itself. Because I think when you do that, you see a certain level of evolution that has occurred. And it really has become remarkable how keynotes have remained relevant. Only a few years ago, a lot of people thought that keynotes just were not going to last given the changing media landscape. But I actually think keynotes are gaining value. With that, let's jump right in with the criticism. In a New York Times opinion piece titled The Last Apple Keynote, Let's Hope, here's how Charlie Warzel sees Apple events. Quote, The events are exhausting love letters to consumerism, complete with rounds of applause from the laptop-lit faces of the tech-blocking audience when executives mention that you, yes, you, can hold the future in your hands for just $24.95 per month or $5.99 with trade-in, end quote. If we go out a little bit further, here's another segment or snippet from the article. Quote, when the world feels increasingly volatile and fragile, it feels a little obscene to gather to worship a $1,000 phone. Serving journalists pastries topped with gold leaf doesn't do much to help either. Those were just two short snippets from an article that had a lot going on. <laughs> so where do we begin? My initial reaction to the article was that it must have been some kind of manufactured outrage piece. 
because the pageant Wurzel described in the article didn't come close to describing an actual Apple keynote. I've been attending Apple events for four years and have gone to every event that's been at Steve Jobs Theater. One thing that becomes very clear when you attend one of these events is that the rounds of applause are not coming from the media or press. Instead, that applause is coming from Apple employees, Apple executives, guests, VIPs. Over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article titled Apple Keynotes Still Matter, the very first photo that I include is a screenshot from last week's product event at Steve Jobs Theater. And it did a really good job at showing where the media and press were found because you could see all of the laptops were open. The people around me, interestingly, they weren't live blogging. They were doing email. They were in Slack. One person was in YouTube. Let's just say media and press, they're doing various things during actual events. And so when you hear a round of applause, it's not coming from the media and press. There may be some people who who applaud, but the loud, vibrant applause, that's really coming right near the stage. It's primarily the executives. It's the senior vice presidents. It's the vice presidents. It's the special guests. In addition, you had a pretty decent number of Apple employees that were in the rows right behind the executives and in one of the upper tiers. And there's quite a bit of applause coming from that. And you may say, well, is it all manufactured applause? Like, are people going a little bit too crazy? And I'm sure there's some people who are really into it. But actually what's going on is that Apple employees that are in the audience, they'll get excited when the product that they've been working on is talked about on stage. When we look at events that are outside of Steve Jobs Theater, sometimes Apple will mix the media and press with Apple employees, and maybe a couple roles have that hybrid. And so I was sitting next to people who worked on the newest Apple Pay features one time, and you could see that they really did get excited when that part of the presentation came up. And I think it's very understandable why they would get excited, because that's something they've been working on for two years or more. That kind of dynamic is very different than the one painted by Warzel, where he's saying that the media is worshiping Apple at these keynotes. That's just not the case. And then when it comes to this criticism around Apple serving refreshments to guests, the desserts are too delicate, some people are saying. I have no idea how that can be used as supporting evidence for Warzel's piece. I don't see how you can look at the types of refreshments that Apple is serving here to say that keynotes have lost their place in today's society. Simply put, give me a break. Apple's decision to offer food, refreshments, desserts, it's a courtesy extended to guests who wouldn't otherwise have a chance to eat anything. Many tech writers and reviewers, they're spending up to six hours on Apple event days doing their jobs. So instead of worshiping Apple, as Warsaw claims, 
these people are actually shooting videos. They're taking photographs. They're getting hands-on time with the products. Very often after that, they may now have briefings with certain people from Apple. They then have to file reports by strict deadlines. There's a lot that's going on there. And I do think if you actually ask people who attend these events, they will say that the refreshments, the food, desserts, it's a nice gesture and it makes their jobs a little bit easier. And by the way, the desserts, they're delicious. They had sushi as well at this event, which I thought was delicious. And I think Apple should continue doing that going forward. I don't think that they should be concerned with opinion writers using the kinds of desserts that are served at these events as criticism of Apple losing its way or Apple losing its touch. There comes a point where people go a little bit too far. After reading Warzel's piece a few times, the only logical takeaway was that the Apple keynote was a victim of a deeper discontent that he holds towards Apple. He sounded very uncomfortable with the idea of Apple having the audacity to sell approachable luxury in a world that is apparently turning against tech companies. By the way, I don't think that's actually happening either. At this point, I don't think we really need to go too much more into the criticism, but I did want to raise one final point. I really don't think the New York Times should have published this particular opinion piece, just because it's labeled opinion. That doesn't mean that someone can say whatever they want. When I was at the University of Connecticut, I wrote for the student paper. I was a commentary writer, so I wasn't a reporter. I wasn't a journalist. I wrote opinion pieces. And in order for me to get my article in the paper in a particular week, I would need to attend an editor's meeting. And I would have to pitch my idea. And the whole point of doing that was to make sure that I had valid reasons supporting my opinion. The editors didn't just want anything and everything found in the opinion section. They wanted articles that could legitimately start a discussion, start a conversation. And so we needed evidence. We needed some way of supporting our stance. We couldn't just go in there and say, I've just used this as an example, Apple keynotes are stupid. They have to go away. And then, well, why do you think that? I mean, what, what, what is your evidence? Well, I don't think Apple should be selling $1,000 smartphones. I don't think there should be applause. I think all of this is just inappropriate. There's nothing there. There is no evidence here. This is just one person who seems to have something against Apple, and they're just going on and on. I don't think that's worthy of grabbing delicate space in an opinion piece. Now, maybe there's more going on here. There are a growing number of people who are becoming agitated with opinion sections of major publications. It's clear that the opinion pieces are driving a lot of traffic to these sites. These opinion pieces are becoming more controversial as time goes on. There's a lot of backlash to opinion pieces. This is not just found in technology either. This is found in politics and other industries. So I don't know if this is a 
sign of a broader issue that's taking place in the news industry. I just didn't think this had enough evidence to stand on its own feet. So with that out of the way, let's actually talk about Apple Keynotes. Let's talk about what I think really should have been mentioned in that opinion piece, but it wasn't. Apple derives three primary benefits from its keynotes, and these are the reasons why I do think Apple Keynotes still matter, and they are of immense value in today's media landscape. The first benefit is earned media. Apple Keynotes command days of media coverage during an era when the news cycle is measured in hours. No other company is able to grab the kind of attention that Apple earns. I joke every year that Apple owns the month of September because of this annual event in which you have new iPhones and more recently, new Apple Watches. I say it jokingly, but it's actually true. Samsung is forced to hold their product event in August. It's the worst time of the year to unveil new products for consumers. Why do they do it in August? They don't want to compete with Apple in September. You then have Google, Microsoft, Amazon. Well, they need to fit in their events sometime between September and October because the holidays are right around the corner. You need to get your product unveiled pretty much by the end of October if you want to have a shot of getting traction around the holidays. You can't wait till November. And so you have all these other companies, well, they're kind of all fighting each other for time in October. Apple owns the entire month of September because of one keynote. You have news sites and publications. They're out with previews in the week before the keynote. I think Apple also has learned to leverage the keynote to a degree because what they have are pre-orders start that week. The products then go on sale the following week, so you almost have a carry-through. It's not just one day. It's weeks of coverage. So when you take into account those event previews and all these event reviews, I think it is possible Apple is receiving hundreds of millions of dollars of free press just from a single keynote. The second benefit that Apple gets from its keynotes, theater and design. Apple events are productions. They're built and designed to provide an experience to those in attendance. This is one reason why Steve Jobs Theater is so important to Apple. The venue ends up telling guests a little bit about the people who built the products announced on stage. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, the typical Apple keynote audience will include representatives from Apple partners industry leaders, special guests. And when it comes to the media and press, what Apple is really trying to do is tell a story. Try to explain why are these products being announced. The venue ends up playing a role in that story. The third benefit from the keynote, and this one probably is the most important, employee morale boost. No one wants the product that they have spent two or more years working on to be unveiled to the world in a press release. Instead, to have that new idea unveiled on stage at an event that's watched by a few million people provides 
a level of satisfaction and accomplishment that really does go a long way given all of the sacrifice that went into making that product in reality. And what I mean by sacrifice, I'm primarily focused on time, time away from families. I think most of you have worked on certain projects in your careers where you put a lot into it. And to be able to get that sense of accomplishment where you have 3 million people see it for the first time, that's an intangible that's very difficult to recreate anywhere else or using anything else. In my view, any one of those items, earned media, the theater and design, employee morale boost, any one of those items by themselves would be reason enough for Apple to continue putting on keynotes. The thing is, on most of these keynotes, all three of those factors are on display. Accordingly, there is no valid or logical reason for Apple to stop hosting these events. Apple keynotes end up being a smart and rational business decision for Apple. Now, at this point, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about the keynote itself and how it's changed over the years. The Apple keynote isn't a static entity. What used to be smaller affairs targeting technology writers and gadget reviewers have evolved into global events. They bring together people from different continents, diverse backgrounds. One thing that I've noticed over the years is that whenever Apple unveils the iPhone, because that is such a global product, you do tend to have a more diverse crowd in terms of countries represented looking at the media and press. So at this past event, there was a pretty large group of media from Japan. And there was also a pretty large group of representatives from Italy. And so, and we could even extend this a little bit to talk about when Apple does things like Apple Watch. They may look at, okay, where do we see this product doing really well? Is this product maybe doing well in certain industries outside of technology? Well, what we're going to do is bring representatives from that industry. And so as Apple has gone more into wearables, into luxury, into fashion, you have seen that diversification enter the media and press. It's not just tech folks anymore. It's people outside of the industry. And I think it's a great development. I think it's always fun when you have people from different perspectives, different backgrounds, looking at the same products and coming away with completely different opinions. You may have three people look at Apple Watch and they're each focused on something different. Maybe some people are focused on the bands. Some people are focused on the the chips inside. Other people are focused on, well, how can this fit next to a mechanical watch? What, what is the relationship there? It just makes things so much more interesting. Another sign of evolution when it comes to Apple Keynotes is how Apple broadcasts these events. For the first time, this recent event at Steve Jobs Theater was live streamed on YouTube. There were reportedly 3 million viewers across the presentation. It's hard to believe, but just a few years ago, Apple Keynotes weren't even live streamed. Instead, you had to visit pretty much a tech site, read the live blog. That's how you found out what Apple was even announcing. It's just remarkable how much has changed in just a few short years. Over at AboveAvalon.com, I included a clip of what is now the iconic iPod unveiling at Apple's Town Hall Auditorium. This is back in 2001. 
It doesn't look anything like the modern-day Apple keynote. Apple events used to be targeted toward tech writers and gadget reviewers who would publish the all-important yes or no decision as to whether or not a new Apple product was worthy of purchase. The dean of gadget reviewers was Walt Mossberg. He symbolized this era. Things are dramatically different today. No single reviewer or publication holds enough influence to make or break a new Apple product. Another major change that has occurred with Apple Keynotes is found with the presentation itself. Fifteen years ago, Apple Keynotes consisted primarily of Steve Jobs going through slide after slide with a few demos here and there. In January 2007, you had the iPhone unveiling. Steve Jobs was on stage by himself for 88% of that presentation. It was a 103-minute presentation. Much of his focus was spent on making the case for why a certain new Apple product should exist. The thing is, Apple had a user base that was a fraction of its current size. Steve wasn't just up on stage selling a product. He was up there selling Apple. In contrast, the Apple event from last week had nine different presenters. They were Apple employees who worked on the product being unveiled. And you had Tim Cook as the master of ceremonies. He was on stage for approximately 14% of the time. This move from having one person handle most of the keynote to relying on different presenters and really just utilizing a completely different structure, it was debated. It, It was a controversial move. And I do think it led a lot of people to think that the Apple keynote was on its last legs. With the rise of social media, a lot of people thought that Apple events were going to have trouble remaining relevant in a news cycle that was getting much faster. So the news cycle may have been days, now it's really hours. In addition, I think a lot of people just weren't sure how Apple would handle the most critical moments of a keynote. When those products were unveiled for the first time, demos, the one more things, all of that had been handled by Steve. And I think there were questions as to, is Tim Cook the best person to handle that? Is it Phil Schiller? Should they have more representatives on stage? There were a lot of questions around this time. As it turned out, the Apple keynote went on not just to maintain its influence, but it's actually gaining value in today's media landscape. This brings up a question. Why? (laughs) What changed? In my view, I think the big thing that has occurred with Apple Keynotes is that Apple bet big on video. Apple Keynotes now include a heavy reliance on video for handling many segments of the traditional presentation. Everything from showing off products for the first time to going over the product sales pitch, it's all handled by video. It helps that these videos are very well done. When I was watching this presentation in Steve Jobs Theater, it really did occur to me, there is no other company out there that has this high level of marketing videos. They are so well done. Some of them are very emotional. Some of them are funny. They almost don't seem like ads, even though that's exactly what they are. While Apple's initial move to video was viewed as a way to handle the presentation role that had been given to Steve, the increased usage of videos began to serve other purposes. 
videos shown during Apple events now go on to be watched and passed around social media. I went back and compared the iPhone unveiling in 2007 to last week's product event. I counted the number of videos and the percentage of stage time that went to videos. The only thing I didn't include was say someone was up on stage playing a video game. I did not include those in these totals. So in 2007, that iPhone unveiling had six short videos, most of which were just clips of TV shows and movies. It represented 2% of stage time. During last week's event, Steve Jobs Theater, 11 videos were shown, representing nearly 22% of stage time. Three of those videos, by the way, and they were included in ad campaigns, they now have a collective 55 million views on YouTube. Another way Apple has been betting big on video when it comes to keynotes, and this really is interesting, they've been publishing these recap videos and then posting them on YouTube after the event. So these are roughly 100 second, 120 second recaps that basically go over every major announcement that Apple had just made. They're so well done. And I think what Apple saw is how other sites would publish these Apple event in four minutes, Apple event in 10 minutes, and they would just basically cut out a lot of the filler and focus on just the major events. And what Apple did is, I think they saw how those videos were doing really well on YouTube. <laughs> they were getting a lot of views. They did their own. I think a few years ago, that was unimaginable. Because people would have looked at that as Apple essentially telling people, oh, don't bother watching the full presentation. Just watch this two-minute recap video. The thing is, those recap videos have become a great way for Apple to bring the keynotes to life. Recap videos, they're receiving four to five times the number of views as full keynotes. So relatively speaking, few people go back to rewatch a 100-minute Apple keynote. However, people do go back and watch a two-minute recap video of that 100-minute Apple keynote. And they probably go back and rewatch those videos over and over again. When we compare Apple keynotes to product availance from other companies, there is no competition. Apple is in a league of its own. We can look at Amazon. Amazon thinks of failure differently than that of Apple. And what that means is Amazon's okay with shipping duds and failures because in their view, that is how you eventually find a product that people will like. We could do a whole episode on that, but <laughs> I don't agree with that from a hardware perspective. From, from a consumer gadget perspective, I don't agree with that strategy. While people may love Amazon from the perspective of buying things, getting it delivered, maybe they enjoy having Prime, that's a different dynamic than going out, buying Amazon hardware, putting things in your house, using gadgets from Amazon. While Amazon may be selling a lot of Echo speakers, I don't really make much of that because the thing that's really selling goes for $30, $35. These are throwaway products. And I think when you look at adoption, when you look at usage, it's telling a different story than when you just look at sales. And this strategy of, well, we got to ship failures in order to find the successes. 
consumers don't want to be guinea pigs. So you can't have a big product event and say, this is it. This is the product that we think everyone's going to want. And then it flops. You can only really do that a few times. And that is a risk that Apple faces, by the way. I think any company that's selling tools to people, if you're seeing flop after flop after flop, it's a problem (laughs) because people are going to start losing trust. They're going to lose confidence that you are actually shipping products that will be worthy of their purchase, that will be worthy of their time. We turn to Google. I think Google has tried to go down the hardware event path. I just don't think they have the culture for it. I, 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 and this kind of goes bigger into just Google trying to sell its own hardware. It, there seems to be this institutional lack of interest. Microsoft and Samsung, I think they are trying to emulate Apple's keynotes with both companies going heavy on the theatrical side of things. But at the end of the day, keynotes from those companies just aren't able to generate and sustain the level of buzz and interest that Apple creates. While Apple is in a league of its own when it comes to product unveilings, that doesn't mean that the Apple keynote is perfect. There are ways for Apple to improve the keynote and have it become a more valuable tool. I came up with two items. The first, on-stage demos need to be rethought. Given precious stage time to game or app demos is increasingly questionable. This isn't meant to say that we have moved past demos altogether and Apple should simply fill that time with another video. I do think there is a role for demos to play, if showing something in the flesh can prove a point more effectively than a simple video. But I will admit that's not an easy thing to do because Apple's marketing videos are really good. (laughs) But I think a balance is needed between the tangible demo and video. Here's a thought exercise. What is the last memorable Apple Keynote demo? So what comes to mind? I don't know about you, but it was difficult to think of a demo in the past few years. Instead, I had to go to the initial iPad unveiling when Steve Jobs sort of sat down and had an iPad in his lap. You had the iPhone unveiling where you had a call taking place in the venue between Steve Jobs, Phil Schiller, Johnny Ive. You have the example from 20 years ago, Phil Schiller jumping off a 20-foot ledge (laughs) to demonstrate Wi-Fi in an iBook. You have Steve Jobs and the Hula Hoop demo at the same event. With onstage demos come risk, and it is understandable that Apple would want to de-risk its keynotes as much as possible. Two years ago, there was a minor mishap with a Face ID demo. It ended up being one of the most talked about items from Apple's event with some going so far as to say that the demo failure meant that the feature wasn't ready for prime time. I don't think that demo failure would have been made into as big of a deal if it occurred 10 years earlier. Well-done demos can give keynotes a certain amount of soul. When we go back to those things like Phil Schiller jumping off a 20-foot ledge or Steve Jobs of a hula hoop and an iBook, One reason those demos worked so well was that they were performed in front of a massive audience. 
you had a lot of developers. Even today, Apple's WWDC keynotes, they have a different feel to them than the events at Steve Jobs Theater. That's what 5,000 developers will do. (laughs) It will change the environment. However, that doesn't mean that you need 5,000 people in the crowd. We can look at Apple's services event this past March. Having those Hollywood celebrities on stage, that was technically a demo. I thought, as a member of the audience, I thought that worked out really well. It was entertaining. It kept my attention. Apple had a message that it wanted to push forward. It has the ability to grab the biggest names in Hollywood for Apple TV+. And that demo effectively reflected that message. Sure, they could have done a video, and they did have some videos. But having those talks on stage, it added something to the event. As we move further into the wearables era, Apple demos involving smart glasses could prove to be a great way of unveiling new ideas and concepts to the world. The recent string of augmented reality demos at keynotes where you have people running around empty tables and desks with iPads in hand, they leave much to be desired. And I think it says something that after every one of these demos, I find myself saying, yeah, that would make a lot more sense with a new form factor, something more like smart classes. So it tells me that there's something there. Apple's just not quite getting it yet. The other area that can always be improved when it comes to keynotes is secrecy. There is something about seeing or learning about a product for the first time when it is announced on stage. We can look at the Pixel 4. Google has basically soft unveiled the event. We know so much about the product already. That removes much of the oxygen from its upcoming Pixel hardware event. Now, while it's not easy for Apple to maintain secrecy around unannounced products, I do think the company has seen more success on the secrecy front recently. We can look at last week's event. Apple was able to surprise the world by positioning an always-on display as a key feature of the Apple Watch Series 5. The feature didn't leak beforehand. As we wrap up our discussion, Apple keynotes remind me a lot of Apple retail stores. The success found with each item ultimately depends on the product being sold. If Apple doesn't have compelling products that people are interested in, the keynotes used to demonstrate such products will fall flat. While some people may hold cynicism when it comes to a trillion-dollar company unveiling $1,400 Apple Watches and $1,100 iPhones in an underground theater that costs more than $100 million to build, Such a stance ignores the impact Apple products are having on people's lives. Apple keynotes are an effective way for the people building these tools to tell the world why such products should exist and how they can be used to improve the lives of a billion people. That tells me there is still a role for the Apple keynote to play in today's always changing world. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com and you want more of it throughout the week, I do write a daily email all about Apple. Each email is about 2,000 words and typically covers three stories. 
If it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to. I'll talk about everything from Apple business and strategy to my Apple financial estimates. I'll also go over my perspective and observations on current news, Apple competitors, and of course, full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. One quick programming alert. Last week, I did publish my Apple event review. That was split into two daily updates. The first went over my major takeaways from Apple's event. The second went over my full notes. So I went over 31 different topics. My daily updates about Apple represent the cornerstone of above Avalon membership. So to receive my Apple event review and receive new daily updates directly in your inbox throughout the week, all you have to do is become an above Avalon member. Head on over to aboveavalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. Once on the membership page, you can then see all the additional privileges and benefits found with membership, such as priority email access. There is an archive, so you can go back and read previously sent daily updates. I think the total now is 825 or so, so it's quite an extensive archive. There is access to my Apple earnings model. There is a forum so you can chat with other Above Avalon members, and there is much more. For questions related to membership, I did include a list of frequently asked questions and answers on the membership page, or you can reach out to me. My contact information is available on the website. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships. So if you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're thinking about or planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance, and I give you a very early welcome. I look forward to having you become a member. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.